On this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts, we'll take up arms and visit the world of Call of Duty with the senior producer of Infinite Warfare, Jason Addis. And my son Scott returns to the show as we break down our knee-jerk post-screening reactions to Rogue One. Now, straight from the mess hall on board the UNSA warship Retribution, this is 1.21 Gigawatts! Hey there, and welcome to 1.21 Gigawatts, episode number 12 for January 2017. I'm your host, Brad Barton. This podcast is meant to shine a spotlight on the aspects of geek pop culture that I think are cool and noteworthy and should be celebrated. I'm referring to movies, TV, comics, games, theme parks, and more. If all that sounds good to you, you are in the right place. And I intend to do that not only by bringing you interviews with the creators of said nerdly awesomeness, but also with a series of rotating segments and features that take a deep dive into a specific geeky topic. For the second December in a row, Disney Lucasfilm dominated the box office and many, many holiday conversations with a brand new Star Wars film. As of this recording, Rogue One, a Star Wars story, has grossed over $510 million in ticket sales in the U.S. and over $1 billion globally. And it ain't over yet. As every self-respecting geek knows by now, Rogue One is the first live-action standalone film in the Star Wars franchise and tells the story of how a ragtag group of rebels capture the plans to the original Death Star, thereby setting the stage for the original installment in the saga, Episode 4, A New Hope. My son Scott and I got our rogue on, hashtag dad jokes, during opening weekend and made it as far as the snowy parking lot before we started recording our thoughts. And I'll say that one of the most controversial choices of Rogue One is definitely perceived differently when seen through the eyes of a 12-year-old. We join our enthusiastic initial reactions already in progress. <laughs> oh, oh, that was so good. Okay, now I can speak a little bit more seriously. Amen, brother. <laughs> All right, Rogue One. Oh my gosh, where to begin? So we'll be relatively quick uh, and... Uh, Caution that this might contain spoilers. I don't know how spoilery we're going to get. Maybe a little bit spoilery. There are certainly some things in the movie that are just amazing that to even hint at what they are is probably going to spoil something. Uh, so let's talk about the really obvious stuff, first of all. What did you think about the characters, the new characters? Um, I think they're good. I think that Jin Erso is really great. I think the progression of Cassie and Andor is really good also. What do you mean, the, the progression of Cassie and Andor? Well, like, just describe where you feel like he started and then where he ended up. Well, I feel like he started, like, obeying the... the alliance. Yeah, obeying the Alliance down to, its strict, down to its strictest order and not trusting Jin, and then he progressed to do what he felt was right and not the orders of the Alliance. Yeah, uh, I think something that was really interesting about him and about the movie in general is that there's a lot of gray area. If Star Wars has been a lot of white versus black, right? Like the good guys are good, the bad guys are bad, and that is that. The rebels as we see them here are pretty gray area. Um, in fact, when we meet Cassian, he's doing some pretty some a little bit of some shady stuff all in the service of his mission right because his commanders sort of give a like look whatever you do you have got to accomplish this yeah um and if that means that um someone gets left behind he seems 
pretty okay with it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, of course, this is really sort of Jin Erso's story. That's Felicity Jones's mm-hmm. character. Um, as we uh, meet her, we meet her family, and we see her progression also from sort of this sort of uh, street urchiny character that's sort of been left behind and has probably lived a really tough life by the time that we meet her mm-hmm. and uh, how she finds uh, redemption as uh, as her family finds redemption. What did you think about... You know what? I want to talk about some of the other cast. So um, so little by little, we meet some of these other uh, amazing players, um, including uh, Chirrut Imwe. He is a blind warrior who I guess... Uh, was involved in like guarding a Jedi temple or temple of kyber crystals or something. That was a lot. That was it was a piece of Star Warsy information that they just sort of like threw out and it went past pretty quickly. And you're just like, all right, whatever. He's he's <laughs> just yeah. someone someone that we met. Um, what did you think about him? Um, I I think he's okay. He's a good character. Although I feel like we didn't get into his backstory as much as we could have. And I think that seems like an interesting story to tell. I'm sure that there will be a novel or a comic book series that will be happy to do that for us. There's no way that they are going to leave this character by the side of the road and not develop his backstory more because um, he was amazing. And this is a character who, uh, with all due respect to Master Yoda and with even more respect to the hundreds of man-hours that went into creating Yoda's um, uh, lightsaber duel with Count mm-hmm. Dooku in Episode 2, I immediately forgot about that when Chirrut Imwe, uh, played by Donnie Yen, uh, of amazing uh, Chinese and Hong Kong action cinema movies portrays, his like initial fight sequence when it mm-hmm. was just all martial arts taking down those stormtroopers i i kid you not if 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 i haven't come out as a nerd before here is the moment a tear ran down my face i was so delighted <laughs> by <laughs> by that fight i'm sure you've never been more proud of your father that was remarkable it was so great and it was just so cool i can't stand it um I want to give uh, props also to uh, Riz Ahmed. Uh, he's the actor who plays uh, Bodhi, 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 Rook. Bodhi. Bodhi. Um, the uh, Imperial pilot who defects, who uh, puts a lot of this action in motion. He's so good. Um, if for no other reason, because I thought that he did a great job of, in a weird way, being the everyman, because he seemed sort of like really nervous about, yeah. like, I don't know how we're going to do this and sort of out of control of everything. What mm-hmm. do you think about him? Uh, I think he was I think he was pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also, as many people are pointing out, possibly the one who steals every scene he's in, the character that steals every scene he's in, hmm. which, do you know what I'm going to say? Who I'm going to talk about? I don't know his name, but I know who you're talking who? about. Who? Go. Who, who is it? The droid K K eight. Uh, K two S O. K two S O. Yeah, absolutely. K two S O. With voice and uh, motion capture performance by Alan Tudyk. So great, so great. If for no other reason, because he's the comic relief. Um, of course. Yeah, and and he does it in such like a deadpan um, manner and self-involved manner. Mm-hmm. Um, that he would constantly be giving good news that was really good news for him, but usually would mean that everyone else was kind of screwed 
Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that character is great. That character is great. Uh, to, what did you think about... Uh, let's turn to the bad guys. So our main villain in this is director Krennic, played by Ben Mendelsohn, who's a great actor and um, didn't disappoint here. I mean, this is not the role that he's going to win an Oscar for. He isn't necessarily quite the super menace that you'd hope for, but um, he was cool. I thought there was a lot going on with that character. Yeah. Yeah. What did you like about him? Well, I feel like I feel like he was desperate because mm. it seemed like everything is falling apart for him. Like the defection of Bodhi Rook leads to questioning of his of like him disciplining his troops. Yeah, and his abilities. Right. Yeah, and I feel like he's really desperate to take down the Rebel Alliance, and I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I agree with that. He's he's someone who thinks he's on the verge of, like, I am going to be the man in the Empire. I have built this Death Star. Yeah. I, I orchestrated everything, and, like, almost as soon as he seems to be in a position of, like, ha-ha, I am ready for my promotion, I'm the king of the universe, then immediately uh, actions... Uh, both of the rebellion as well as the empire sort of conspire to like, no, no, we don't think so. We don't think so. And he does seem to move with a desperation. Um, uh, let's talk about the visual effects. This is Star Wars, so of course, you know, you know that they're going to be top-notch. Um, and yet, this thing really sort of went above and beyond. Many people have been saying in reviews and whatnot that the Act 3 space battle or battle sequence of this is possibly the best concluding battle of any Star Wars movie. That is mm -hmm. a big statement. What do you think? I think that might... It's arguably true. It's, it feels weird to say that because it almost feels blasphemous. I mean, and we I say that like if, if anyone has listened to this show with any regularity, you, you probably have guessed my heart. I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a wide ranging nerd. I've got lots of nerd ball interests and very geeky interests, but Star Wars owns my heart. Star Wars is is uh, is the one that set me down this path in the first place back in 1977, and so that's where I'm always at. So it's it almost feels weirdly inappropriate to say this movie may have the best final act crescendo of any Star Wars movie, but yeah. ho, 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 if you're, <laughs> if you're not gripping the armrest or the person next to you, I did both in this movie, Scott can attest to that, I don't know how many times I grabbed you with, like, I can attest to that, yes, how many times, like, dude, that was the coolest, Scotty, did you see it, um, so, so good, the effects are amazing, and, you know, with other Star Wars movies, Especially in the prequels, they sort of found themselves in the habit, found themselves in the habit of with each movie adding, like we need to have a battle in on the land, we need to have a battle in space, and maybe this other battle, um, you know, like Jedi, say for example, Qui Gon and Obi Wan versus Darth Maul or something that has to be going on. You know, so the, the point is like we're cutting between, um, you know, land, space, ground, whatever, uh, yeah. or land, space and some other personal Jedi conflict that happens at the end of Return of the Jedi, right, with Endor, yeah. the space battle, and then uh, Luke Vader, Emperor Palpatine. Mm -hmm. And 
often it feels earned. It felt earned in Return of the Jedi. In the prequels, sometimes it just sort of felt like, we need to be bigger and crazier, and it didn't really have the emotional stakes. Mm-hmm. Um, this one um, feels really organic as, as what happens on the land affects what happens in space. What happens in space affects what happens on the land, and everything affects and is, is affected by the very personal conflict that is going on with um with Jin and I don't almost want to say anymore because I'm afraid it's going to get spoilery um but man it was super cool uh really quickly I want to talk about for fans who I want to say uh Gen X fans of Star Wars if you were a kid and you grew up with Star Wars and I can only assume then have watched um, a New Hope a million times since then, and have sort of memorized every beat and character and sound effect. You know what the sound effects sound like. You know if you hear, you're like, that's the mouse droid. If if that's the level of depth that you live, eat, and breathe Star Wars, then this movie is like a love letter because you hear the sound effects. Um, you, uh, there's, uh, b- since this, basically, people joke about this movie being, um, you know, episode 3.9. It's more like this is episode 3.99. Yeah. This movie, um, almost literally ends with, within, like, five minutes of A New Hope. It practically overlaps into... It practically overlaps A New Hope four. in the most satisfying way, in a way that feels incredible and frankly I think that this movie will probably improve the viewing experience of A New Hope Hmm. I think I don't know if there is a better double feature ever to watch Rogue One and then go right in A New Hope because after seeing everything that they go through to get the Death Star plans um, how desperate it has been and then to know the amount of pressure that already uh the rebels are under um at the very beginning of episode four um the momentum like i don't know how you don't start watching episode like if we went home right now and put on episode four which quite frankly i'm tempted to do um i my heart would be beating a mile a minute watching the, the rebel blockade runner escaping from vader's star destroyer having just watched what we watched because it's like oh they are right on you you've barely gotten away this you know because it's no spoiler we know how rogue one ends right they get the death star plans yay everyone knows that but how it gets there is great it is heartbreaking uh and um amazing um i will add uh one more oh so what i was going to say before about if, if you're a gen xer who's who's lived with with star wars your whole life there are so, so, so many things that range from slightly ham-fisted references to, you know, when uh, some random alien gets bumped into on the street and turns around and says, hey, you just watch yourself. Like, and he's got a scarred face. Like, okay, well, hello, cameo. Got it. I'm not even going to say who that is. If you're a Star Wars fan, you know what that means. Uh <laughs> Uh, and how that ties into episode four and how that character got to a cantina so quickly in episode four, I'm not sure, but whatever. That was his next stop. Yeah. Okay, slightly deeper spoilery. Slightly deeper spoilery now. If if you haven't yet seen the movie and you want to be surprised, here's something slightly spoilery. Um, One of the most impressive technical achievements in this movie 
is that um, uh, we there are some significant characters in this movie, one in particular, that is played by an actor who has long since passed away uh, in real life, uh, and that is the inclusion... Do you know where I'm going with this? That is the inclusion no. of Grand Moff Tarkin. Oh, he's passed away? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, the actor who played Grand Moff Tarkin, his name is Peter Cushing, and he died many, 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 many years ago. Many years ago. Uh, really, you didn't know that. All right, so that's interesting. So you know you know Grand Moff Tarkin, of course. Well, yeah. So he came on the screen. What did you think? Did you know he was in this movie? No, I didn't. Okay, was that cool to see him? Yes. So are you saying, because you thought that he had not passed away, did you think that that was him? Uh, I think so, yes. Yeah. Now that I've told you that, though, do you feel like... Are, like, what, what are you thinking right now? Are you like that? What? Because I assume that was CGI. Yeah, I, I guess it's it's impressive. But when you were watching it, did you at all suspect that that was CGI? No. Nice. All right. Well then, congratulations, Industrial Light and Magic. You just raised the bar, I think. Um, if it, you know, it's it's tough to gauge. I would say, as someone who who did know that Peter Cushing has passed away and that that was not him, um, it's tough to gauge if that was really sort of a, a perfect CGI or not, because I'll admit, I was watching every frame that character was in, thinking, like, wh where is the moment that I'm going to look at it, like, eh, fakey, a little fakey there, or, you know, when does the, when do we enter the uncanny valley of, do you know what the uncanny valley is? That's, that's the idea with, with CGI, people have accused characters, say, like, in the Polar Express, that uh -huh. they're really amazing, but they don't seem quite right for whatever reason maybe it's their some people sometimes people say it's their eyes don't feel quite right or that they look very human almost too human whatever the case might be something just feels off and in the case of tarkin in this movie i don't i don't think so um the technology maybe can still come a little ways but it was pretty darn yeah. impressive Pretty most impressive. impressive. Most impressive. <laughs> uh, and of course, the voice acting of the character, whoever was doing it, is is dead on. And uh, when you have line readings that mirror what you heard in A New Hope, you may fire when ready. Then it's hard not to get chills either way, because they nail it. Um, Tarkin is not the only character that gets this treatment. I'm not going to say who the other character is, but uh, it your face will light up when when you see who the other character is. Um, and then there are other characters that uh, are have been pulled out of the mothballs that are played by humans that are amazing. I believe that there was actually footage, unused footage from A New Hope that was incorporated into this movie, uh, which uh, also probably accounts for a few of the bruises that I probably put in your arm and like grabbing it out of excitement during the movie. Scott, I'm sorry. So sorry. Um... So, since we're sitting in a car, uh, slowly uh, losing circulation in our fingers and hands, we can go home pretty quickly, unless... Uh, and, and we're just going to wrap this up with a few last words. Is there anything else that you'd like to say, since I've sort of dominated this with my Generation X Star Wars excitement? Is there anything else that people should know about this movie? I'm the Force, and the Force is with me. Oh, nicely played. I will conclude by saying that this movie is so jam-packed with Star Wars world-building... If nothing else, I will watch this movie 277 more times. 77. Eh. Um, 
I'll watch it 278 more times. Whoa, now there's a challenge. Bye, guys. The day after we recorded this, Scott and I did turn on the beginning of Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, and if you enjoyed Rogue One and haven't yet done so, you have got to rewatch the opening crawl and opening scenes between the Rebel Blockade Runner and Darth Vader's pursuing Star Destroyer. It now plays with a sense of urgency that will have your heart pounding, because you know that the badass Rogue One version of Vader is right behind them! Run, Princess Leia! Run! Fly faster! Starting back in the late 1990s, I had the pleasure of performing improv in New York with a great group of talented women and men. One of them was also my roommate, one of them became my wife, and one of them was this upbeat guy from California named Jason Addis, who always brought great energy and spirit to the group. Eventually, he returned to California to start a new career, and New York improv's loss was video gaming's gain. Because if you're a gamer, I can almost guarantee you've played a game that Jason has had a part in creating. We talked back in November about his time in video games and his latest project, a tiny little first-person shooter called Call of Duty Infinite Warfare. You probably haven't heard of it, it's no big deal. The latest installment in the Call of Duty franchise, Infinite Warfare, was released on November 4th and has sat at the top of the sales charts since its release. A game like this requires an army of designers, programmers, and digital artists to bring it to life, and corralling all of these craftsmen and women is someone whose job it is to stay on schedule, stay in budget, and oversee a great game. In the case of Call of Duty Infinite Warfare, that man is Activision's senior producer, Jason Addis, and now, via the miracle of Skype, Jason, welcome to 1.21 Gigawatts. Hey, Brad, how you doing, man? I'm good. I like that you're laughing already. That's that's the tone I want for this. Very, very glowing, glowing intro. Um, I'd be remiss uh, to not mention that it, it really does take an army of people to, to work on a, a project as grand as this. I am... I am but one of many great people who uh, who work on it. And yes, I've already called myself great. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that that slid in pretty naturally. Sly, you sly dog. I'm, I'm sure, though, that I wildly oversimplify what it is that you do as a senior producer. So when you have to explain this, when you're when you're with the grandparents and they say, what the heck do you do? How how do you explain what what you do uh, in the midst of the game? Oh man, that's not just like a grandparent question. That's uh, <laughs> that's like an everybody question because it's one of those things um, where where you do so much, you wear so many hats, you solve so many problems, and then suddenly somebody comes over and is like, "So what does a producer do?" And you're like, "Dude, everything." <laughs> um, I usually just sum it up very simply. I think at a really, really high level, uh, when I was when I was a young lad learning, um, it was summed up to me in, in three different parts. Uh, they said, make sure that you come out on time, make sure that you come out on budget, and make sure that you come out at quality. And then you can always tell them, you can have two. So that's that's the simplest answer I can give you. That, that sounds about right. As a producer myself, I sympathize with just that thing. Like, which are the most important of and those? And only you understood how important that one conversation that happened was and how hard it was to get those two people together to talk about that really simple thing that couldn't work out over email over several weeks. Um, yeah, we, we bridge people. We bring people together and we get people talking about really, really uh, complicated things and sometimes really simple things. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In, in the interest of full disclosure here at the top, I, of course, should acknowledge that you and I have known each other since the late 1990s. Oh, <clears throat> it hurts. It hurts bad. Uh, when we performed improv comedy together in New York City, which seems so long ago now, but man, we had a lot of fun on stage together. Oh, man, we did. We yeah. did. And we were surrounded by amazing people as well. Yes. Uh, and at this point, we're going to reenact some of those scenes. All right. I don't remember a single one of them. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's improv, because that's the beauty of it. All we know, we can just walk away with that, with the magnificent aftertaste of, I know we did something good on stage, but it's a disposable art form. So what are you going to do? So, so tell me about the path from when we knew each other, performing in New York City, to ending up on the West Coast and ending up in video games. How, what, uh, aside from the 48 contiguous states in between, how did you end up there? Uh, well, it's, that's actually a, a really, really simple. I grew up out here in, on the West Coast, uh, and I moved to New York after college to uh, do what so many young people do. Um, when you are a performer or a writer or a director, uh, you go to one of two places. You either go to Los Angeles or you go to New York. If you want to be in theater, New York is the place to be. If you want to be in television, uh, Los Angeles is the place to be. So I, being from Los Angeles, decided uh, to go to New York. And uh, I got to a point in New York where my entire family, everybody, everybody I grew up with, everything that was really important to me was out on the West Coast. And I had made so many really good friends out on the East Coast. And I got to, it's crazy when you're living on the East Coast because you go through a lot in a very short period of time. Like, especially if you're used to growing up out in LA where everybody just seems like super happy and there's so much sunshine. And then you go to like New York where, where everything is just really tough and you live like five days in one. Um, I got to this crazy place where I knew that if I got through one more New York winter, because uh, that's how I qualified my life there, like how many winters I lasted in New York, uh, because every single time summer would come around, you'd be like, winter is coming. Uh, I knew that if I were to get through one more, just one more New York winter, I would never go back to Los Angeles. Uh, I had made really good friends at that point and my life had really become, started to gel. I started to actually make a living in theater. It was crazy. I was like, you know, I moved out there and I was temping and doing whatever I could to just make ends meet while I had my, like, like itched my theater habit. And, and finally when I was making money and making a living on it, I was like, ah, well, I could stay one more winter in my entire life where I can go back home and not, not miss out on, on the final years with my grandparents. Um, quality time with my folks, uh, my sister, and, um, you know, family's always been very important to me. So I moved back, uh, really because, because uh, I'd lost a few people while I was in New York, and I was like, I can't, I can't miss anymore. That's really important to me. Um, so I came back to L.A., and then I was like, okay, now I'm in L.A., and there's no real, like, there's a theater scene, but it's not the same. And I had no idea what I was going to do at all. Uh, and I remember um, I remember having an all-night bender playing Diablo 2 because the one thing that I've always done since the time I was like four or five years old is I played video games. You know, when I was a kid, my dad bought an Atari. Uh, I used to sit there with him when I was five years old playing Pac-Man and baseball and asteroids. Um, so I've always done that. No matter what's been going on in my life, I've always been a gamer. And so... 
typically, uh, whenever I had spare time, you can find me gaming. And I was just, I was just having an all night bender, like a vision quest. One of those things where I'm like, I don't want to know what I want to do with my life and everything's so complicated. And wow, I just had a career in New York that was just like beginning and I just left it all. And now I'm starting from nowhere. What do I want to do? Um, so I killed monsters until finally, uh, finally I had this epiphany. Um, and it's weird that epiphanies seem to come after a lot of sleep deprivation. <laughs> Epiphanies and cults. <laughs> and, uh, when the game spoke to you, this is Diablo, Jason. I remember, I remember there was a moment in that game where I thought, wow, they've come so far with storytelling. Uh, and I can, I can do that. I want to do that. Why am I not doing that? I've been doing that my whole life. And there's so much more you can do in video games now. I think I have something to offer with video games. And literally the next day, I got a random phone call from uh, my best friend's girlfriend. He was like, hey, I know you're out of work right now. There's this entry-level position in this video game department at Warner Brothers. Uh, if you want to interview, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll put your resume in. And I'm like, yes, please, please, please do. I mean, it literally was the next morning that that happened. And two weeks later, I started work there uh, literally as the, the most entry-level position you could get. Uh, and this is like my second career at this point. I'm like almost almost 30 years old, uh, starting as a office assistant, doing calendars, getting coffee, just being a complete whipping boy. Uh, <laughs> but I was so ready to um, to do something different, do something new, and, and, and get into games any way I could. Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning of the end. Uh, that was <laughs> the beginning of, of my uh, second career, and I've... I've been in games now for uh, going on 16, 17 years. That was a very long answer to a really simple question. No, that's that's what I wanted to hear. Uh, I, 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 of course, know a lot of that, but I think it's sort of inspiring to hear for a lot of people that, A, might be looking for you know a change in their life or, or the possibility that a second career not only can happen, but then... Um, vault you to such lofty heights as uh, as you are now. Um, that was crazy. It's it's a crazy thing because when I actually started uh, in games, I mean, it was still really considered this sort of niche thing that mm-hmm. that that us nerds did. You know, we <laughs> we sat in our parents' homes and as as grownups and we played games. <laughs> um, no, it was really was not. Uh, it was not mass market yet. It was really just on the cusp. It was like right before, right before it just became this massive business, and it was still a bit of the, still a little bit of the wild west. I mean, we did things so differently back then, and and just, you know, as a person just getting my start, I was really really fortunate. I had a really, um, had a really cool boss. Uh, my first boss at 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 Warner Brothers. His name was Rob, and this guy was really cool because he was always reading scripts and doing other things. He had interests that were, you know, both in gaming and outside. And and once he got to know me and knew where I came from and, and knew that I had this uh, history in theater with playwriting and sketch writing and, and comedy, he, he started throwing scripts my way and saying, hey, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? What do you think of this? And uh, eventually um, the rest of the office started to understand that I had other skills too. So they'd be like, hey, uh, why don't you play a build of this game and, and let me let me know what you think about this. Let me know what you think about that. And 
slowly I earned all these guys' trust. I worked really hard. I worked a lot of hours. Um, and then that really awesome boss left. And uh, I had to kind of figure out whether I wanted to leave uh, the gaming department because he went to an agency. Hmm. And I didn't want to go that route. And so this new guy came in, and he was like this uh, this New Yorker who was from France. So he's really... <laughs> the old New Yorker from France gig. <laughs> hey, buddy. Hey. Um, sort of like Sylvester Stallone, only French. Uh, and, uh, and he came in, and he knew that I was really, really eager, and he just continued to throw things my way. He's, I need market research on this. I need some analysis on this. I want to check out all of these great, you know, all these licensed games and I want to see what they rated and I want to understand how their sales were and I want to be able to equate whether, uh, you know, uh, a high rating for a game absolutely equated to like great sales and and he had me doing all these really cool tasks and in the meantime I was uh, just grinding to uh, to move over to production and, and uh, we eventually greenlit our very first co-published title over at... Um, over at Warner Brothers, it was for Looney Tunes back in action. And they had a temp spot open up for for an associate producer. And it was like a six month gig. And I remember walking into my boss's office saying, hey, I want to interview for that. And he's like, that's not a full-time gig. I'm like, yeah, I want to interview for that. I want to do that. I'd like to interview for that. Can I interview for that? And he made me interview with every single person on the project. And uh, I was definitely not the most qualified person for that job. Uh, I really, really wanted it. Um, my boss wasn't just going to hand it to me. I went in and I interviewed with every single person in that office and in that office, and I gave my plea as to exactly why I was going to add value to that project and what I would do. And um, they all agreed. I had uh, none of the credentials needed to uh, <laughs> to do that job, uh, but I had a lot of passion. Um, and I had, and I came from sort of a different place. And that particular job actually required that this person step in and kind of do a lot of different things. And and I did get the gig. And I quit my job as a full time employee to become a temp associate producer on this game. And the next thing I knew, I was living in Manchester. I was uh, helping to do dialogue trees. And and you know, it's funny about that game. It actually that video game was the greatest training I could ever have. Um, for on, for so many reasons, I got a lot of training on the publishing end. I got a lot of training on the developer side. I went and lived at the developer in Manchester for a, for a while, and the design of that game changed after we'd recorded like ten thousand lines of dialogue. It completely changed, oh. and they had to rescope the entire game. But of course, we didn't have the budget to like go and and rewrite it and re-record it. So one of my first big jobs when I was sent out to this developer was. Hey Jason, um, so the design changed. Uh, can you take a look at the audio and just kind of um, figure out how you can sort of puzzle together what we have to, you know, fit the change of the design and the story, and and then also make it dynamic so these characters can have all these conversations, you know, with all these different things going on. Yeah, just go figure that out. And so I sat there with ten thousand lines of dialogue. Um, figuring out how to make it work and then, <laughs> you know and then I and beyond that I had to actually work with uh, with their audio team and engineers who had to, to do some special scripting and guys who had to do special code to make some of the uh, the audio features that they wanted for the game working and, and I knew nothing and I think that was the perfect way to approach it because because I knew nothing 
I didn't care what anybody thought or said. And I wasn't really cognizant of what any of my requests meant to any of them, which meant that I was just charging like a bull in a China shop, <laughs> which is exactly what that particular project needed. But it was a great, hey, welcome to video games. You're going to live in a foreign country. You're going to uh, stay up until about 2, 3 a.m. every single night, seven days a week for several months to finish the game. Uh, and uh, you will then, you know, potentially just be out of work because the game will be over. Uh, fortunately for me, I proved myself. I earned my way on. We, we decided to do another co-published game. Uh, I went back on full-time, and I worked on that, and kind of the rest was history over there. That is, that is amazing. Uh, I love the idea of here's a giant bucket of dialogue. Please write a story using these lines. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's right. Well, we knew the basic story because it had to follow the movie, but like all the levels, like... <laughs> you know, it was just, it was amazing. It was, and everybody, when they spoke about it, spoke about it in a way that it was just like, oh, it's just, you know, hey, can you grab that and just do this thing? It'll be easy. Yeah, right. Exactly. They were doing to you what you were doing to them. Also like, hey, you guys can just do such and such on this uh, programming end, right? What? Come on, man. And then they gave you a challenge as well. All right. So they, wanted, they, they had all these like little instances set up in the game where every single time you'd approach a character, they wanted the dialogue to be different. And depending on how you answered, you'd always get like different responses. So I actually had to go find all the potentially pertinent dialogue and put it together in a, a bunch of different ways. And then we had to create some, we had to basically create uh, banter trees. I'm tired just hearing that story for you, for Manchester uh, living Jason. That makes me tired. Um, all right, so that's that's the the beginning of the career. Let's let's jump now to where you are at this point. You and I talked on the phone uh, a bit, like a day or two before Call of Duty: Infinite Warfare was released, and you sounded relieved, nervous. <laughs> What's it like when, when the game has I, shipped and you're just waiting to see what the response is? Like, there's nothing more you can do. It's just out in the world. What's going through your head at that point? I've been working on Call of Duty for uh, for like six or seven years now. And um, it's like the dream project, right? Uh, and I think the very first time, just talking about games in general, the very first time you ship a game, you it, there's so much excitement like the very first time that I ever saw any product that I worked on or contributed to like in a store I freaked out when I saw it I took pictures of it like I, <laughs> at a uh, at an infant daughter and I like shoved like the boxes of the game in her hand and I was taking photos <laughs> like launch day my kid's so excited <laughs> ruling um, the funny thing is now I, I do still get excited but I guess it's just business as usual in many ways you know, I've worked on a lot of these. Uh, you know, all the hard work, you know, happens, you know, leading up to that. And, you know, at that point, you've just done so much. And you know that it's just the beginning. When a game like this launches, it's just the beginning. Um, because there are millions of people that play it. So you know you're going to be doing live ops and supporting it. So the game is out. Uh, but it is literally, it's like, Imagine like if you if you had a kid, you know, there was a birth in your family, like that's not the end. <laughs> that's, that's the beginning. Like development is like is like the pregnancy, right? It's just like you're growing the baby or the, you're not. You're I'm producing it. The, my wife is growing it. She's doing all the hard work <laughs> telling her how to do it. You need to grow 
at least 10 fingers <laughs> need to be delivered by this date and it better be quality <laughs> um, but the baby is born and that's literally when um, when it starts so so we've been really really busy since we launched just making sure that if anything's found in the wild um, if if the community uh, you know if people are concerned about things related to to whether it's weapon balancing or or any number of issues that we're on it immediately we're we're out there we're listening to cs we're hearing what things come in from them we're hearing what uh what the community has to say where we just we're just beginning yeah it's alive oh it's alive all right walk me through the development process for for a marquee franchise game like call of duty so it becomes clear that another installment of call of duty is of course going to happen how is the direction of a specific installment decided like for in the case of infinite infinite warfare who says you know what we should do guys sci-fi that's new well how how does that decision even come about Sure. I, I'm going to speak on this particular question. I'm going to speak more along the lines of just general sure. like, franchises, not necessarily for Activision, not necessarily for Call of Duty, but just big games that I've worked on in my career seem to have certain things in common because the, the deal is like every company works a little bit differently. Every developer works a little bit differently. So things are greenlit um, a bit differently from, from place to place. But there is like a commonality. I mean, typically um, most big projects we'll go through a green light process. And it starts with the developer being really, really passionate and having an idea, like a, an idea that they want to bring to life, uh, that, they, that they're behind, they believe in, and they'll create a prototype or a vertical slice. And they will take it into a green light where all the big decision makers and stakeholders are sitting there in that room and they'll be like, this is the game we want to make, this is why, and also here is Here's a here's a little slice. You know that's typically what you do. You 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 have a bunch of passionate people that come up with a great idea, and then they spend some time and they create a little sample of it for people to look at and visualize. And then of course at that point, you know you're also working working with people like uh, who are in your marketing teams and otherwise, and they're going and making sure that the market has like an appetite for what you want to create and. And you're working with all your business people and your finance people and figuring out how much would it cost to make the game that you want to make? Um, how, you know, is, is there a desire for it? You know, are, are all the features, um, at least theoretically, resonating with people? I mean, you know, there are two sides of that. I, I, I think some creatives really believe, like, look, you deliver a great game and people will want it. And I definitely believe that. Uh, but when you are convincing an entire business to get behind something, the business also needs to know that the market you know, desires it and wants it. Uh, so they do a lot of research there. And uh, you go into a big, big, scary green light and, and all the right people, you know, make those decisions and go, you know what, we're behind this, let's go. Or they go, hey, uh, you know what, come back in three months and show us X, Y, Z. I mean, it, it works differently. But those are those are common things that I've, I've seen sort of across the board. Um, Everywhere I've worked on on larger franchises, you know, there's a lot of people that go into a green light, but at at the start, it's a passionate, talented developer with with a great idea and a kick-ass prototype. Going, this is what we're making. So the Call of Duty franchise casts a relatively wide net over different types of games. Of course, Black Ops, Modern Warfare, and the World War II era stuff. Um, I am sure that you had to develop, uh, and you, I mean specifically you, of course, Jason, um, you and your team had to develop a, a bunch of different 
um, game mechanics for Infinite Warfare because now you're dealing with zero G and you've got dogfights in space. What is that maybe also like when you're like, guys, you guys are the best you are at what you do normally, and now we're going to push you to something else. How about such and such? Well, look, I, I think at the end of the day, it comes down to having a really, a really talented, passionate developer. Um, those guys are going to be pushing every way that they can to do things that are new and different and set them apart and what they're doing apart. And uh, I think there's always a big push from innovation, and I think it comes from multiple places. I think it comes from it comes from the developer themselves. If you're working with talented people, they obviously want to do great things. Um, you know, the team that I I was fortunate enough to work with are are really really talented. They really really wanted to to push uh, narrative. They wanted to create a seamless sort of campaign and story, which was, you know, you know, a first for, well, it was, you know, the first, first for us doing it that way. And, and, um, and they pushed, they pushed the boundaries in those ways. And yeah, they, you know, when you think about going into an environment like space, there are so many possibilities that, you know, as you mentioned, the, uh, the jackal dogfighting, um, that's something that, you know, they worked on, they prototyped, they tested, they refined, they, test it again, they refined it more, and, and that happens over time and iteration and just continually uh, putting your content in front of uh, in front of test groups and players. User, we call those user tests. And they give you valuable feedback and, and great developers watch that. They look at it and they make the little tweaks, they dial the knobs and, and then suddenly like people are going, oh my God, that's, that's great, that's awesome, and, and, and you know you're there. When did you guys start working on it? Uh, when did you, when did you begin on Infinite Warfare? Well, I'm I'm on the publisher side, uh, but I can tell you that uh, the developer, you know, that was a three year labor of love for them. Okay. And do you... I mean, games are really really big these days. I mean, huge tentpole games. Generally speaking, the big tentpole games take you know two to three years to make. And you look at other games that are out there in the marketplace. Some of them are taking four or five years. You look at uh, Grand Theft Auto. They they've taken a lot of time between installments of their game or yeah. recently with Red Dead, um, plenty of time between their titles. And uh, they're just really big undertakings and they require you put in a lot of time to, to get them right. Right. Uh, I know you've got a massive voice cast in Infinite um, uh, Warfare, including Kit Harrington from Game of Thrones fame. That's just the tip of the iceberg, I know, for this cast. For something like Infinite Warfare, what do the actors bring to the table? Is this, in the case of this game, is it just vocal performance? Are they doing mocap? Is it a little bit of both? You know, that's really that's a great question. Um, I always like to tell a story. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take you on a little journey. Oh, all right. I'll pack a lunch. Okay. <laughs> uh, when I started in games, the, the way that development pretty much worked was that. You know, you, you made a game and you wrote a script and, you know, when you were a couple months away from actually submitting it to first party and getting it manufactured, you know, you, you got it cast and you brought all the talent in and you recorded and then you got all the dialogue into the game and then you bug fixed and you were done. I mean, the talent would come in and you'd spend like two weeks, you know, maybe a week, maybe less, depending on the game you were making. It was a couple days in the VO studio with... Like just cramming it all in at once, and it was a massive, massive undertaking by the audio team. Um, very, very different now. Uh, you know, with the advancements in technology, from you know, motion capture is just one you know aspect of things. I mean, these days with performance capture, we're able to actually capture 
you know, really a, a full uh, voice plus body performance. Uh, and and with the way that we are able to animate these days, we're able to really bring a lot of those nuances to life and, and, and get them right, you know, onto the right into the characters, right into the game. So it's changed a lot. Um, you have situations now where you, as you're building the game, you you have, you know, performance capture sessions as you're working on levels with the talent. And there, you really build a relationship with talent over the course of time on a, on a big uh, tentpole franchise. Uh, and, you know, this is a case where they are bringing, they're not just bringing their voices, they're bringing their bodies, their souls, their expression, you know, so much nuance. And, and, um, and, and it's the way that the performances are now, you're really able to just suck somebody right into the world, right into the moment. You, you're able to have really intimate moments now between characters where they used to not really read yeah. um, terribly well. But there have been so many advancements from you know being able to use a light stage to, to, to get people's faces to the way that we do blend shape. Uh, technology and getting all the different expressions and then solving for all those little in-between expressions. You could do so much now. So uh, the actors bring a ton to the table and you build a relationship with this talent over the course of not just a couple days now, over the course of, you know, months or a year or two years, depending on the, on the title you're working on, depending on the team, depending on how that team works. Um, Many, you know, a lot of teams work very differently uh, some teams still try to get a lot of the things with the talent in all at once, but other teams are more organic and they'll and they'll work on a scene. And then if it's not quite working, they'll go back and they'll they'll tweak it and they'll they'll re-record different aspects of it. So so it's a big endeavor, and I think it's it's really paying off. And certainly in the title that uh, we just released, I'm I love the campaign. I love the characters. I think uh, you know the first time I remember being able to play from beginning to the end of of the game, I was like, wow, this is it was really special. It was, it was just, there was some very, very small nuanced moments where I just watched that, that and I remember back to the first time I played Diablo thinking, wow, I would like to do this. And then seeing mm-hmm. what we were doing then to the kinds of things we can do now, uh, it's like it's like a face melter moment. You just go, what? Well, it, it really is. It's funny that you say that. And I, I think it applies to a lot of film CGI as well as what is happening in gaming that you'll watch them at like, you know, if we project ourselves backwards 10 years ago and, and look at CGI effects or something, it's like, that looks amazing. It's real. It's photorealistic. We're never going to see anything better than that. And then, like, the next summer, you go to a blockbuster and you're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe what Always they pulled off. And and games are, in in a lot of ways, I think, are pushing it even harder because if you, it, you can tell, you know, if you don't have a believable level of intimacy between the characters, like you said, um, and looking at uh, a lot of the scenes and, and material from Infinite Warf- Warfare, good Lord, it's so, it's it's great. I mean, like, I don't, is there a game in the middle? I don't care. I just want to watch this story because <laughs> the animation and performances yeah, are amazing. It's really cool. And, and the, and the, uh, Infinity Ward team is really, you know, like they're top notch. They're they're so talented. Uh, the way that they approached that story, the way that they work with the actors, the way that I'm just really really impressed by that team in yep. particular. And uh, you know, I've worked on a few of these, and and every single time around, by the way, like every single time I'm working on a new game, I'm I am frequently blown away by the various things that you know developers uh, accomplish and do and you know when i worked on advanced warfare 
Uh, I was really blown away by a lot of the, just by a lot of the moments that they were able to capture when, when they were working with Kevin Spacey. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, again, like, um, I've been really fortunate. I've worked on some cool games and, and man, it's, uh, I think someday, you know, years from now when I'm not just sort of like business as usual, I think it'll kind of dawn on me a lot of the really, really cool opportunities I've had. It's hard to see it sometimes along the way when you're always just sort of going from one to the, like one critical deadline to the next critical deadline to the next critical deadline, this launch, this live ops. It, it's, you know, you're just in it. You're going, you're a pro, you're out there playing baseball every day. <laughs> you know, that's just what you do. Right. Um, okay, so it's hard journalism time, Jason. Um, okay. Get ready, brace yourself. So, so this is this is crazy, and I almost I want you to explain this to me because this just seems like madness. So there was a bit of a YouTube like a hate campaign against the reveal trailer for Infinite Warfare, which following you guys had like thirty five point three million views, which just that by itself is just mind boggling to me. You made that man. Um, and and of that, like it accumulated like 3.3 million dislikes, which is just uh, gigantic and ridiculous. Considering that this is a the trailer A is objectively great to watch, and B the game hadn't even been released yet, and now there seems to be a backlash against the backlash, where people are saying, "Come on, this game is good. What's the problem?" So my question to you is, what is wrong with people, Jason? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anything, Brad. That's that's passion. That's people who are just really, really passionate, and the, you know, and they have the ability to express themselves in, in all these ways, all these brand new ways now. And <laughs> and you know, I, I try not to think too much about it. I'm always focused on like trying to achieve the goals that we have, and and uh, I think like it. Again, I'll liken it to like professional baseball. I think if like an outfielder drops a ball and then all he can think about is the ball that he just dropped, like like the game's lost right there, right? So, right. Um, you know, you brush yourself off and you keep going. Everybody works to, you know, go hit the home run at their next at bat. Uh, this is what we do. We're professionals and there are passionate fans. I mean, when you go to a ball game, you know, imagine being that guy that's getting booed at by like 30,000 people like all at once. Um but he's a pro. Yeah, that's what he gets paid to do. He goes in and he does his job. That's what that's what I do, and that's what uh, the people I work with do. We keep our heads down. We do our job. That's so good. You're the mentally healthiest person I know. I love that answer. <laughs> um, how <laughs> when you hear stuff like that is 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 it difficult figuring out like what is a legitimate complaint and and is even helpful as criticism versus just jerks being jerks. I mean, because a fair amount of that are people whose heart is in the right place, I'm sure, in some cases, right? And they're like, you know what? I like the game. Here's something that I don't particularly like. Like, how, how do you know when to listen and when to say, look, I'm the next up at bat, okay? Let me just give me a shot. <laughs> oh, man, I could tell you if we, if only we had a segment on mean tweets. Um, <laughs> you, again, it's, here's the thing. Like, they're over the years, we've built up a, a really big, passionate fan base. And there are different things that, that all these people want and they desire and they can't wait to see. And they're very, very vocal. I mean, they're really, really vocal. And, yeah, I mean, look, we we absolutely listen to our community. Like, when we launch a game, we're, we're, we're reacting and responding to the things that are coming up in our community. I think in the case of, uh, you know... Uh, something that's very general like a general dislike campaign again you you have to keep your head down and you have to just 
get the job done, and, and you've got to just make the best possible game you can make and knock it out of the park. And that's what you got to focus on. How much gaming do you actually still do at this point? Do you, do you get burned out on the idea of it because like you work in the sausage factory all day, like I'm I'm good, thanks. Or do you still go home and like I can't wait to get back to my campaign? I don't get burned out on it. I I love I'm that's the thing. I'm I'm such a passionate gamer. I think the way that I consume games has changed. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a dad uh, like you. Yeah. We're dads. Um, and we do things <laughs> a little bit differently. Like I find now as such a huge gamer, I can't just sit down and, and play like 200 hours of Skyrim. I, like I want to. I want to sit down and play 200 hours of Skyrim. I want to play through all of Fallout. I want to just sit there and do nothing but play GTA uh, all week long. Uh, but I do have responsibilities. Like I've got to get to work. I've got to take care of my family. I've got to spend some quality time with them when I'm not at work. Uh, and so I, I try to keep those things in check, but I do consume a lot of video games. I absolutely play a ton of what I work on. Um, you know, I have to be an expert there. I'm playing it all the time. Uh, right. I mean, I don't just play games for a living. That's, By the way, that's the biggest misconception you'll ever hear. Oh, you work in video games? You just play games all day? <laughs> like, no, I work all day, and then I play games all night. Uh, <laughs> So, so yeah, I'm always playing everything, you know, all the competitive products that are out there. And then I'm always looking at other things that are, that are out there that I think that, you know, games that are doing interesting things. I play a ton of, I play a ton of games on my iPad and my mobile devices uh, just because I'm, you know, uh, I'm not always in front of a, a console. And honestly, when you get home really late at night and you've got the few minutes with your kid, it's like, Oh man, am I gonna go down to the living room and get like three hours in on on that game right now, or or am I gonna go lay in bed and just play more of my iPad games? I, I play a lot of games on my iPad. I play, I'm playing games all the time. I, I spend hours every single day playing games. When Shadow of Mordor came out, like there was no time for me to fit that game in. I was like, I was about to ship another game. I was, uh, I, every last minute was with my kid, but but this is what I do and this is what I love. So until I finished that game, I woke up every single morning at 5 a.m. so that from 5 to 7 or 5 to 6.30, I could just play the game while my kid was still, before my kid was up. Um, and, and so that at night and the little bit of time I had, I could get some quality time in with my wife. Uh, and so I just woke up early. I mean, that was my sacred gym time, <laughs> but I wanted, to, I wanted to finish Shadows of Mordor so bad. So I did that until I finished the game, and I do things like that Yeah, all the time. So, so I've got one more question for you. Um, is there a game franchise, or even better, is there a franchise out there that doesn't have any games attached to it yet that, that like is your fantasy project that you'd like to work on? Because clearly, and I'm pitching you now, I think if there's going to be a Fiddler on the Roof video game, you're the man to produce it. Oh my god. <laughs> How would that work? Let's see. I'd want a peripheral with a violin. It's <laughs> <need some> note tracking. <laughs> we need some karaoke. Oh my gosh. Uh that's a great question. You you got me completely unprepared there. Um You know, I'm such a nerd. Like uh I've gotten to work on so many of the things that I would have wanted to such a lucky bastard um <laughs> no i'm serious so many of the things that i really would have really dreamed to work on like 
like in the 90s, I was a crazy Matrix fan, and I got to work on a Matrix game. Uh, I grew up as a huge comic book nerd, uh, you know, and then I got to work on a bunch of comic book video games. I loved Transformers when I was younger, and then I got to work on a Transformers game. And then as such a crazy gamer, I, I get to work on Call of Duty. That's So if I think, is there something out there where I go, oh, my God, I would love to make that game? Um, I think the answer is if I had the time and the quiet, I would probably think of something original that I haven't seen that I'd want to see. Yeah. And I think I would explore that. I think we need more of that. I think you're probably right, and I think that everyone would eagerly look to that. Um, I am so grateful for the time. This is amazing, Jason, and uh, I'm uh, amazingly, as a friend, proud of everything that you've pulled off. And, you know, when I, I, I knew that I wanted to talk to you, but even just researching this ahead of time and, and digging deeper into, into you and the games that you've done and realizing, oh, I've heard stories about this game and this game and they're the DC games <laughs> over the years. But the, the oh, sheer wow. amount is, is mind boggling and, uh, and I'm so excited for you to this day. Well, thanks, man. Yeah. That's freaking awesome. And, and I got to tell you, uh, over here, I think about, about you all the time and, and Lulu, of course, your lovely wife. Um, that wasn't supposed to sound creepy the way that came out. <laughs> we have a restraining order against you now. It's okay. Your lovely wife. <laughs> <laughs> Diablo, you're back <laughs> for more advice. Oh, your lovely wife. <laughs> if you've already been enjoying Call of Duty Infinite Warfare, you may be happy to know that the Sabotage downloadable content pack is coming your way January 31st. Among the items included in the DLC is a new zombie mission called Rave in the Redwoods, which is inspired by the amusement park zombie mission from the main game. And it features the voice and likeness of Kevin Smith. So get ready to kill some zombies while presumably hearing about comic books and geeky movies. That's it for this episode of 1.21 Geekawatts. I'd love to hear what you think about this latest audio adventure. What do you like? What should be tossed in the nearest hellmouth? You can let me know by leaving me a message at one of the show's many social media channels. Those would be the 1.21 Geekawatts Facebook page, where you can follow and discuss the latest film, TV, comic book, and genre entertainment news. On Twitter, I'm at 121geekawatts. And on Instagram, you can check out pictures of my own geeky treasure trove at 1.21 underscore geekawatts. It's new every day. Plus, you can find all of those feeds in one magnificent destination at the 1.21 Geekawatts website. It has photos, blog entries, every episode to date, newsletter sign-up information, and more. Get thee to www.121geekawatts.com and delight in the nerdliness. And if you're not already aware, every episode of this podcast is available for free in the podcast section at the iTunes store. It's so easy to subscribe and never miss a geeky second. And whether you're a subscriber or not, you can leave the show a review, hopefully a good one, on iTunes, which will help more people find the show, which would make me a happy, happy man. And if you're not an iTunes user, you can always find us by searching for 1.21 Geekawatts at SoundCloud.com. 
Thanks to all of you that have been listening from episode to episode and have taken the time to share your comments. It truly means more to me than you know. Speaking of thanks, huge gratitude to the Admiral of Audio, composer and my co-producer, Cisco, David Cisco. You are and remain the best, Cisco. Dear listener, if you enjoyed this travel-sized chunk of geekitude, please share it with a nerdy friend. You can follow, like, etc. all those social media accounts mentioned a few seconds ago and let people know that you're listening. I'm Brad Barton, and until next time, here's nerd rock band H2Awesome with our radtastic theme song. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. 1.21 gigawatts. What every geek wants is what we got. From Doctor Who to Aqualad, you might meet Luke and Leia's dad. Pop culture that is super rad. Hosted by some guy named Brad. It'll rock you to your nylon Cylon socks. 1.21 freaking gigawatts. Captain's dead. Went down with his ship. So who has the con, Gator? I believe you do, sir. <laughs> <laughs>